When I was a kid, uh, waking up on Easter morning was actually a lot like uh, Christmas. My mom would stay up late the night before, after we went to bed, and she would hide Easter eggs all over the house. We didn't do the outdoor yard when she would hide them at night. And so when my sister and I would wake up, we would uh, tear through the house before my mom and dad even got up, and we'd go hunting uh, for all the eggs. Uh, and we didn't use plastic eggs, so there was always this like pressure to find every single um, egg. I can remember my dad kind of grumbling from his chair um, Something uh, like, you know, you better find all those eggs or the whole house is going to smell like rotten egg. You know, my dad's kind of blustering, fake, grumpy voice was just part of the Easter music. Um, but my mom was careful to count every single egg she would hide. And, uh, and, and my sister and I would wake up early and we would, we would go hunting and find all of them. And, um, and so we would tear through the house until we found every last egg. Well, one year, I, I was somewhere 10, 12 years old. And uh, my mom woke up and looked over the eggs we had found and asked why we hadn't found them all. And I assured her that we had. I, I said I made sure every cart was full and uh, before I sat down to watch, you know, cartoons or whatever. And she was like, then where are the missing eggs? I was like, well, I ate some of them. And she was, you know, so she was like, how many did you eat? I was like, I don't know. I wasn't counting. I was watching television. But I promise, I found every egg. Every carton was full. Twelve dozen per carton. Or twelve eggs per carton. And she, was, she came in all wide-eyed. She was like, tell me you did not eat every egg that's missing. And I was like, I don't, I guess. Apparently I had eaten 25 hard-boiled eggs that morning while watching television. And this was when eggs like were first becoming the devil. Like, remember when they first attached cholesterol on eggs and like eggs were... This is when that was like brand new. And so my mom comes running in with two aspirins. She was like, swallow this positive or 10-year-old was about to have a heart attack, you know, from eating, from eating too many eggs. And so... As I was trying to come up with a great like Easter memory to share with everybody this morning as we as I started my message, that was the that was the first memory that kind of popped in my head and the most clear the time that eggs almost killed me on Easter. Um, so uh, uh, and it's a little strange and maybe a little sad that the one memory that comes the most clear um, had to do with Easter eggs instead of Jesus, right? I mean, it's, which begs the question: What on earth do Easter eggs? have to do with Jesus, or the Easter bunny for that fact. Anybody ever wondered that? Which obviously means we have to answer that today. That's just what we do. That's what we have. We have to figure that out. Anybody know the history of the Easter egg and the Easter bunny? Believe it or not, um, this is a history lesson that we had to wait until our kids were kind of gone um, before we could talk about because it's not necessarily a pretty one. If your kids are still with you, I apologize for the words you're going to have to um, explain to them. But... Um, most of the Easter icons that we have date back to Saxon um, pagan worship. Uh, and, and they worship the goddess uh, Ustra. Uh, that's how you spell it. Ustra, which is where we get our word Easter. It was, uh, Ustra was a fertility goddess. And her festival was celebrated in the spring. Um, before the sowing of the first spring crops, her, uh, uh, her blessing was sought for a good harvest. The belief was that if you honored her first by eating a great many eggs, um, I'm not a worshiper of Usta, but if you ate a great many eggs, um, 
uh, it would honor her. And then the second thing they did was the truly kind of nasty part. They would sacrifice, because eggs are a, a symbol of fertility, they would sacrifice rabbits, another obvious symbol of fertility, and they would rub the rabbit blood mixed with raw egg on their bodies and have big orgies to ask for, um, to ask for uh, a blessing on, on the crop of children that they were hoping for to add to the tribe. Um, so I don't think they were too concerned about COVID-19 in the 5th and 6th centuries. No social distancing there, I don't believe. Um, so the Easter egg and the Easter bunny, or maybe we should call them the Usra egg and the Usra bunny, were actually symbols of ancient pagan worship, which I hope leads you to ask two questions. First, how on earth did these ancient pagan symbols get mixed up with Christianity? And... What kind of Easter message did you just wander into? Like that, and, and I hope to answer at least one of those questions this morning. Um, we are exiting the wilderness. Uh, if this is your first time with us or you're just visiting Open Table this morning, um, we take Lent pretty seriously around here. Um, we spent the last six weeks fasting and talking about wildernessy, I don't know if that's a word, but I'll use it, wildernessy type stuff. Um, we've been digging into some of the uncomfortable realities of life. Um, and I think it's been good. It's been a rich Lent season. Amen? It's been a good season. Um, and we had an awesome Holy Week. Uh, our Monday Thursday celebration was amazing. We had a great Good Friday dinners. And I even got some feedback from some people who leaned into Holy Saturday just a bit. So it's been a very full Holy Week at the end of a very long and, and kind of tiring Lent season. And boy, are we ready for resurrection. Amen? Amen. Um, We've been uh, in a series titled At Jesus Through Lent. Uh, and we've been looking at some of the highlights of Jesus' life. Some of the stuff that maybe he would have posted to Instagram if he lived in our day. Some of those moments that were post-worthy at Jesus, if that were his handle. We've even kind of playfully um, dug around to see what hashtags Jesus might have used as he posted some of his stories. But uh, in fact, when I was looking today for kind of a catchy you know, title, kind of a catchy hashtag that I could use for a title of the message, I wound up um, going you know, pretty basic. Bear in mind, branding is not my strong suit. But uh, I just did hashtag Easter because this is a hashtag that's been used 30 million times on Instagram, uh, which gives me like a tiny sliver of hope for social media. But we, uh, we dug into these stories not just to see what happened historically, but to see if we could kind of parse out what they might tell us about the nature and character of Jesus. And more specifically, what these stories might tell us about the way that Jesus uh, interacts with us in our life. And, uh, and, and how we can expect Him to show up day to day. If you're a visitor, if you've missed out on any of these services, they're on our website, YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast provider. But... Um, or if you ask real nice and bring like two dozen eggs, I'll re-preach it for you. Like, I'll just, I'll give you the... Um, so this morning, uh, we're done with the hard stuff, right? We sat through the silence of Holy Saturday, the unknown, the uncomfortable wait, um, so that we could wake up this morning and experience the shock and exultation of resurrection. So before we go any farther, one more time, He is risen. Amen. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, or the words will be on the screen for you. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. 
She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. And they were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and he went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded and lying apart from all the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For until then they had... Uh, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw the two white robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him that I may go and get him. Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to my father. But go find your brothers and tell them, I, have a, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. This is the word of the Lord. So this is John's account of the Easter morning uh, event. And for the sake of continuity, we're going to stick with John's recollection for this morning. And a, and a fun little kind of literary note. Is John uh, gives us his telling of this in the form of a chiastic poem. Um, this is probably because by the time John wrote this down, um, he had told it verbally maybe a thousand times. Um, kind of like some of my t- stories. Quick game, if you ever want to laugh, when I start telling a story, look for my kids. Because their eyes will roll and they'll throw their head back. And that nonverbal communication means I have heard this story a thousand times. Um, so that's probably where John was. He told the story so many times that it had taken on this, this structure that was uh, very recognizable in the first century. Um, if you have never heard me talk about this, or this is your first time here and you don't know what a, uh, how Jewish poetry works, it was structure-based, not grammar-based. And so they weren't rhyming words that they used. They would put their poems in together so they made a particular structure and followed a particular pattern. The most common of these is called chiasm. And a chiasm generally works like this. Uh, so a story that had maybe seven elements, like this morning's story. You'll open with element number one, that'd be 1A, and then you'll close with that same element. Then element number two will be the same as element number six. Element number three would match five, and then your main point that you want to bring out would be sandwiched in the middle. Uh, this looks weird to us, but it would have been very, very normal. Once you kind of recognize chiasms, it's amazing how much they show up in Scripture. This is a very common form of Jewish writing. So let's look at John's storytelling and how it fits in to the chiasm. So Mary comes to the tomb alone, Mary alone, um, and finds the stone rolled away, and she runs to the disciple. This would be A1. 
Peter and John take off together. So the two disciples are together. Um, and we know that John told this story because he brags about running faster than Peter. Nobody, I hate guys like that. Like me and Peter could have been jogging partners because... Yeah, and although John gets there first, when Peter gets there, he, he, uh, he goes in by himself. So in that, we have our main point, but then there, the, it's also um, A2 or C2 because the two disciples are still separate. Um, and then John goes in by himself, uh, and then uh, the two disciples leave together. So now we're back to the two disciples together, and then finally at the end, Mary is alone again. So it forms this really clean chiasm where every point matches the second point. And this is a very common form of Jewish uh, writing. So John built this chiasm probably as a way to more easily remember the details of the story. As he told it over and over and over again, he put it in a structure that made it easy to remember. But it also serves to highlight this main point that he wants people to grab. And it seems to be what Peter sees in the tomb. Whatever that was, he puts it in that middle spot as the one thing that he wants his readers to really catch. Now, whatever these wrappings were, whatever was, whatever the big deal about these wrappings, um, we know it's a big deal because John also says that the second he saw it, he believed it. He said it like this. Then the disciple, um, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. So whatever he saw triggered this belief. So whatever, what John is doing here is actually really, really brilliant. He tells the story true. So he tells it the way it happened. Um, and we know this because of Mary. Um, if you were making up this story in the first century, um, you do not put Mary in the story. Uh, in this day, women had no legal voice whatsoever. They were not even allowed to testify in court because a woman's uh, testimony and voice was meaningless. And so if you were making this story up, you most certainly do not make Mary your key witness. Um, her testimony is meaningless legally. Um, so if you were making this story up, you would choose your most legally reputable um, person to be the one who finds Jesus and talks to him first. But that's not how it happens. And John has to be true to the story. So he has to stick with it the way it happens. But he does build his chiasm where those details are on the edge. And what he really wants to say is stuck in the middle. And so he notes, um, and he also, what I love is he also makes sure that there are two male witnesses that see these wrappings. He tells it because in the Jewish legal system, no truth can be established until there's two male witnesses. So he, he makes sure there's two male witnesses. Um, he tells it true, but he also structures his telling of it in a way that is legally admissible. Okay. And, the, and so that brings up the question... What is the big deal about this evidence? What is this thing that John really wants to bring out? And, and, and I think it's this. Um, and I, I doubt many of us have handled a lot of dead bodies. God, I hope that's true. Um, but in Jesus' day, um, they didn't embalm. Um, they covered bodies with perfumes and they wrapped them in claws. Uh, but the bodies decomposed fairly naturally. Um, and after three days, Jesus' body would have been in pretty rough shape. In fact, when Jesus tells them to roll the tomb, tomb away from Lazarus' grave, everybody freaks out because they're like, Lord, he's going to stink. Like, it, it's been too long. Um, so on Easter morning when Mary shows up and she gets the disciples uh, from wherever they were staying, and, uh, and they, she comes with this incredible story uh, about the empty tomb. But she has a theory. 
And John wants us to hear this theory because it shows up three times in his telling. She's got a theory about the body. She says, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. And later when she sees the angel, she's, uh, or she sees the angel, she says, they have taken away my Lord. And then finally when she sees Jesus, she says, if you have taken him away. So John knows that with the body missing, the prevailing theory will be that Jesus would have been taken from the grave. Uh, he would have been uh, removed. I mean, what else could have happened, right? I mean, what else naturally could have, could have happened? Fine, John says, but if some Jesus followers stole the body um, so that they could say Jesus rose from the dead, or if some Jewish leaders took the body so that they could have, you know, solid evidence just in case some Jesus you know, followers started to say he rose, you can go, he absolutely did not. Here's the dead body. Or if maybe some Romans stole the body just to stir up trouble in this already kind of overcharged Jewish nation, whatever the reason, if someone stole the body, John seems to be saying, why unwrap it? Why would you take the linens off, lay them down, and carry off an unwrapped, nasty, Dead body. There is simply no logical motive for that. And John expects his readers, who would have been much more familiar with dead bodies than us, because they didn't have funeral homes and morticians. It was very common for a family to have to to wrap their dead and, and to deal with them. So he would have expected his readers to immediately know that and immediately go, why would they unwrap the body? So something about these lists. So these linens speak volumes to John. And he wants to make sure everybody captures that. So he puts it in the middle of his chiasm. And that, and, and, and that drives the conclusion that he's trying to put out in his story, which is that Jesus, the only logical answer left, is that Jesus is risen. Now, what John does is masterful, um, because by using this chiastic device, um, he's telling the Easter morning drama exactly as it happened with Mary and with everything. But he's intentionally directing his readers to pick up this entirely evidential, legally credible detail that he's trying to highlight. Now, it's, it's a brilliant recitation of the story, but it also gives another thing that I really, really, really like. Um, and that is that it offers two very distinctive approaches to believing in the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to be completely sexist about it, he offers, and I, th- I think in John's day, he probably unashamedly was, it offers a very male approach, which is very sterile and logical and evidential, and a very stereotypically female approach, which is more experiential and intimate and emotional. So you got the disciples that believe in the resurrection because of the evidence they saw, and you got Mary who believes in the resurrection because she had a conversation with Jesus, this one-on-one talk. And frankly, myself, as a fully evolved and civilized man who only looks like a barbarian, um, I, think, I, think, <laughs> I think this is important because I don't, I don't care what gender you are. Some of us draw to the evidence and others of us draw to the experience. And that's fine. It seems like what John is saying here is it doesn't, it doesn't matter whichever way you come to the cross. They're both okay. If you like evidence, it's there. If, if you like Jesus coming to you personally, it's also there. Now, <laughs> today is Easter morning. This is, the, this is the one Sunday of the year. I'm supposed to jump up and down and shout and holler and say that he's risen and Jesus is alive. So why on earth 
dive into the literary structure of the passage and the historical significance of the first century Jewish legal system and, and all of that. Today of all days, why not just jump up and down and talk about Jesus is risen, right? I'm glad you asked. Um, you know why I think John wrote this account the way he did? I think it's because uh, he wrote in the first century. And for the gospel to have an impact in the first century, it needed to be told in a first century Jewish way. But he also knew that the gospel was not just for the first century. Including Mary as the key role in the story, even though it would have hurt the kind of legal credibility of the story, uh, was because the kingdom was bigger than the first century. It was doing this brand new thing, which included changing the way things were to something more inclusive, where women were for the first time ever included in corporate worship and given a voice in the things of God. Jesus' followers were working within their culture while also shaping a better culture for the future. In other words, John was telling the Jesus story in a way that fit into his society, but shaped the next society. The Jesus movement wasn't mired in the first century culture, changeless and rigid and refusing to adapt. But it also wasn't bullheadedly uh, crashing into the culture and demanding that it adapt immediately or die. It was actually beautiful how John accepted where he was while dreaming of something better. And I think that is what the gospel is supposed to do. You know why I love the Easter bunny and Easter eggs? And more importantly, why I bring them up this morning <laughs> with their sordid past. I love them because to me they're a beautiful symbol of what the gospel does. These symbols of pagan worship and blood and sacrifice and depravity because of the influence of the gospel, are now chocolate candies and fun, colorful hide-and-seek games that kids everywhere enjoy. And isn't that what the gospel is supposed to do? It cleanses and it beautifies. And isn't that what Jesus does? He takes what's ugly and gross and rather than condemn it and separate himself from it, he embraces it. And he makes something that even children can love and find joy in. And that's what the gospel of the resurrection is supposed to do. It's supposed to do it to me and to you. The gospel meets us where we are. Many of us have, many of us have somehow received the false message that we have to get our acts together and, and clean ourselves up so we can get right with God. But that is not the gospel. The gospel says you bring your ustra eggs and you bring your ustra bunny and all the nasty stuff that comes with them and you just offer the whole thing to Jesus and watch him make something beautiful. In other words, you come as you are. And with that mess, Jesus restores this childlike beauty out of our depravity. It feels like chocolate bunnies and it feels like colorful eggs and this beautiful mix-up of baskets and Jesus and pastel colors. Jesus doesn't want to crash into your life and make you conform to something you're not. Rules do that. Law does that. Religion does that. But resurrection is about life. Beauty.
beautiful, messy, growing, changing life. See, the law had crashed into that culture for like 1,500 years. God reveals His heart in the Torah so His people will know who He is and what kind of justice He wants in the world and what kind of devotion He, he, he wants to see in His people. But His people had taken that and they turned it into this battering ram that they used to beat people up with. And Jesus argued with the religious leaders about this all the time. But the resurrection changed all of that. The resurrection changed everything. No longer was it necessary to fight against the culture the way the Jews always had. In this new weird upside down kingdom, the people of God fought against the culture by loving it. Not agreeing with it, but loving it. And through service and giving and real compassion and justice, they watched these these upside down acts of subversion change the culture and resurrect it and cleanse it. And yeah, we've blown it at times. The people of God have grasped for power and we've, we've oppressed and we've butted heads with the culture when we're supposed to be loving it. But all through history, good times and bad times, there's been resurrection. Changing lives and purifying pagan festivals and making the world beautiful because resurrection is not something that happened. It's something that happens. Resurrection happens every day. The resurrection happens all over the world. The resurrection happens right here in this place. The gospel didn't crush the Saxon culture. It resurrected it. It made it beautiful. Something kids could enjoy. And the gospel isn't here to crush you. It's here to resurrect you. So where do you need resurrection in your life? What in your life is dead and needs to be brought back? Is it a relationship? Is it a dream? Is it your innocence? Maybe you've seen so much and experienced so much that you don't think you could get back to a childlike faith. You need resurrection. Maybe your heart for people is dead. Maybe this, this last several years has, has ruined your love for humanity. That needs to be resurrected. Maybe it's your belief that you're created in the image of God, fully capable of reflecting that image to the people around you. Maybe you think you're too tarnished and beat up and broken to ever reflect God. If so, please know that resurrection happens. God is not done with you. He is fully able to bring you back to life to reflect His glory in you. Maybe you don't have any idea what needs to be resurrected. You just know you're broken. We pray every Sunday that God would even answer the prayers that we're not ready to give voice to. He even wants to resurrect that stuff. And that is why Jesus rose. See, if all Jesus needed to do was pay for your sins, He did that on Friday. That would be that. But the empty tomb is about life. It's about how you go on from Friday. It's about this upside-down kingdom of God advancing in the world. See, John includes this funny little detail that we often overlook. Right after he states that he saw the evidence in the tomb and believed, he says this, For until then, they still hadn't understood what the Scripture said about how Jesus must rise from the dead. I read that all bookered up, but whatever. See, the disciples were, were piling together clues. 
throughout their entire time with Jesus, hoping that, it, that he would add up to being the Messiah. That, that's what was happening. Every time he did something, they were like, ah, that's messianic. Ah, that's messianic. They had all these markers that they had learned throughout their path. Many of them were wrong, but they had all these markers that were right. They were, wait, they were watching these markers fall into place um, to, to see if Jesus might be this mysterious messianic character. And day by day, they gained more and more evidence and more and more proof and more and more reasons to believe that Jesus is the guy they've been waiting for. And once momentum had built up, and there was more and more events to corroborate their hopes, they began to believe. In fact, one day Jesus asked them, he says, who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter just answers, like, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we can hear that and we can automatically assume that Peter was a 100% complete, convinced believer. But I think what was actually happening, based on Peter's uh, actions later, is that he was kind of doing that thing that some news outlets do on election night where they're like, with 95% of the precincts reporting, this state and its six electoral votes go to Jesus. Like, and you're like, wait, they haven't all reported yet. What is, things could happen. Like, ah, but eno- enough. This is enough, right? And not talking about the last election. Don't get weird. But what Peter was doing was he was tabulating numbers of things that Jesus had done up to this point that to him made it look like Jesus was the Messiah. He was just assuming that Jesus would do the rest, the ones that hadn't yet been done, the ones that hadn't yet been knocked off. Obviously, he's done so many, surely he's going to do those. Because, I mean, hey, 98% of the precincts are reporting. He's Surely, this is the guy. But, one of those unfulfilled pieces was one of the most important pieces. And it goes all the way, talk, we've been talking about this for a lot for the last year. Definitely, we talked about it last week. It goes all the way back to Jacob. When it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. The one who the nations will answer. All the way back in Jacob, really early in the story, there's this idea of an eternal ruler. Most clearly found its voice when the prophet Nathan talks to David about his plans. He says, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He will be the one to build a house, a temple, for my name. I will secure his royal throne forever. Many people thought this might be Solomon, but when Solomon kind of fell away from God, the prophets began imagining and writing about who this guy might be who's going to rule forever. All the prophets wrote about him, and they all found different ways to say it. Someone is going to rule Israel forever. And this is a key piece of the messianic understanding. So even though Peter's ready to call the election with 98 or 99% of the precincts reporting, Jesus dies. Peter saw him arrested and beaten and crucified and he dies. Despite all of Peter's hopes and all of Peter's assumptions and all of his excitement, Jesus dies. Peter finds out that 99 is not 100. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, as my dad used to say. But imagine... Imagine what's going on in Peter and John's minds when they step into that tomb. And John writes, Then the, 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 the disciple who had reached the tomb first 
also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood what the scriptures. They still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Can you imagine the mental and emotional relief of the of that moment that 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 last precinct reports in? It's it's like a puzzle piece, the final puzzle piece of a puzzle. Hey, puzzle makers, anybody like doing puzzles? Yeah, Esther and I went over to our good friends Russ and Jennifer Johnson. They're back there in the in the overflow. Esther uh, and I went over there when we were having some issues. Just needed to dump some junk, and so we go over there and we're just kind of venting and let, just want to get out of our house for a little bit. And uh, and when we got there, Jennifer had started a puzzle. She basically just had the the border done and. And uh, so while we're talking, I start popping pieces in. And before long, Russ starts popping pieces in. And Jennifer joins on. We're flying on this puzzle. And we get to that last golden moment where the last puzzle piece is supposed to go in. And they didn't have it. Did not have the last. They did not have the last puzzle piece. And the verdict is somebody dropped it and the dog ran off with it. But all I know is I went over there to untangle my brain and find some peace. And instead... 99 is not 100. But I'm not bitter. <laughs> but imagine Peter and John on the walk back from the tomb, quietly rethinking everything. They probably never really understood what an eternal kingdom looked like. They probably always kind of wondered what that peace was. How is somebody going to show up and rule forever? I don't even get that peace. Every prophet's talked about it. It's, it, is a, it is a major peace. It goes back forever. I don't don't understand at all how that could work. And then on the way back from the tomb, they're like, so that's how the Messiah is going to have an eternal kingdom. By dying and then defeating death. The last puzzle piece drops into, into place. Can you imagine how fast everything started to make sense? And nothing short of that could have turned this ragamuffin bunch of cowards into the, into the, the apostles that, that left their jobs and, and went around preaching the gospel and eventually died horrible deaths as martyrs for this risen Savior. Nothing else could have turned them like that. Other than the fact that they now knew that this is forever. This is an eternal kingdom. This is not a fad. This is not just a movement. This is not the current teams who have a seat at the table. The resurrection is forever. They were part of it. So how do we respond to this? For some reason, Esther and I laid around this week and and we talked about getting old. Uh, We don't do this often. um, But I think after a long, tiring Lent season, we were feeling old. And so... It just seemed natural to talk about it, but we were talking about our grandkids and maybe great-grandkids and what life might be like. And we both decided it would be super hard to imagine a future without each other. Like, it was weird. It was kind of emotional, kind of scary to think about. There was, there was tears. And then she called me a baby and I got over it. But <laughs> what's crazy is about 29 years ago, I fell in love with her. And I had no idea we would get old together. I had no idea we would have kids, let alone like a million of them. I had no idea what, what love could feel like. Um, I had no idea what I feel now was even, was even possible. 
Mostly, I thought she had a nice butt and I wanted to touch it. Let's just be real. Let's be let's be real this morning. I doubt I had a single pure thought motivating me to love this woman, this girl. If we're honest, we were kids. But love did a work on us. It changed us. It grew us into completely different people. And if human love between two sinners can do that, can cause that much change, can you imagine what falling in love with Jesus can do? Can you imagine what walking with Jesus can change in your life? And it happens like that. You don't see it coming. Sometimes we think that if we follow Jesus, everything's going to change at once. I don't know. I don't have markers to even know when I fell in love with Esther. It just happened to me. We see this all over the scripture. Peter's a blue-collar fisherman, take a lunchbox to work kind of guy. He's transformed into this passionate preacher and writer and joyful martyr. Still totally Peter. But with the image of God resurrected in him like beautifully dyed Easter eggs. Paul was a zealous religious fanatic who knew nothing but attacking those he disagreed with. To the point that it was all over his Facebook feed. Oh no wait, that's us. Sorry. No, what Paul was doing was actually imprisoning and killing his adversary. He's transformed into this equally zealous proponent for grace and love and faith and joy. Still Paul, but beautiful like an Easter bunny. That's what the gospel does. And it's what God wants to do in us today. In you and in me. The empty tomb doesn't say to you, or to me this morning, join this team or you'll burn. The empty tune says, bring your death, bring your brokenness, bring your pain, bring your loneliness and your rottenness and watch God bring it to life. And it's what the gospel has been doing for 2,000 years. So whatever brings you to the tomb today, whatever brings you to Jesus today, Come. Peter and John were there for evidence. Mary was there because she couldn't imagine a world without Jesus in it. Different things brought them there, but they all left believing. And I did too. See, it'd be easy for me to break down this passage into its literary structures and dig up the historical implications of the text and, and, and parse out the particular Theological points from this pericope of Scripture, but those are just academic. The real way I know that Jesus rose that morning, over 2,000 years ago, was the same way Mary knew, because I met him. I met Jesus. I read somewhere, someone gives this amazing example of if you were to show up at work and you wanted to know if your boss was there, you pulled in the parking lot and you saw his car. That's good evidence. That's just a good reason to believe he's there. And you walk into the office and his secretary's there and you ask her, is the boss here? And she says, yeah, he's in his office. Even better evidence. And you might look and see the light underneath his door is shining. And, and that adds to the assumption that he's definitely there. And you might even hear his voice through the door and think, yeah, he's, he's got to be in there. 
But the second you walk into that office and have a conversation with him, and you walk out and someone asks you if the boss is there, you don't mention the car and the secretary and the light and the voice. You say, absolutely, I just talked to him. I just talked to him. The evidence isn't bad. The evidence is great. It's accurate. It's fine. But it's almost meaningless to you once you've talked to him. Once you've met him. This is how it works with me. Jesus took a a mess of a man-child. I was a ragamuffin. I used to fight and steal and do drugs and have sex with people I shouldn't and drink a whole lot of beer. And now I don't fight, steal, do drugs, or have sex with people I shouldn't. (laughs) See what I did there? And I'm still a mess, don't get me wrong. But where I was when the gospel got a hold of me is like Usra eggs and Usra bunny. And God is working on me to make me Easter eggs. And an Easter bunny. So I ask you the question, what brings you to the tomb today? What do you need? Is it, is it proof? That's okay. There's good evidence. Come. Maybe you need hope. There is no greater hope than the resurrection. Come. Maybe you need to know you're not alone. And you're not going to be alone. Jesus promised He would never leave you nor forsake you. And the resurrection makes it possible for Him to fulfill that promise. So come. Maybe you need help today. We pray knowing that we pray to a living God who has power over death. So come. Maybe you need mystery. Maybe you need love or beauty or purity. Whatever the reason, you need the risen Savior. He is the answer. So come. Your part is simple. You come. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's go to the table.